Welcome to Pro Se, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney. As students head back to school, we're going to give some grades of our own for the federal judicial branch. Is the court system functioning as an A-plus student, or does it need a tutor to keep up? We have a special guest today, Nebraska federal judge Richard Kupf, who joins us to talk about that as part of his review of Seventh Circuit Judge Richard Posner's new book on the state of the judicial branch. And don't listen to the end of the show hungry, because we'll be chewing on the news of a booted settlement agreement in a case accusing Subway of promising customers footlong sandwiches that were actually undersized. As always, I'm here with my co-hosts, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. And Alex Lawson. Hey! So what's up, guys? Not a whole lot. I'm, I'm pretty tired. I, uh, I moved last night. Yeah, that's always such an undertaking. How'd yeah, it go? Yeah, he did, and he had, he had help from some handsome, strapping co-workers. Oh, I wonder yeah. who that would be. Meaning me. A yeah. podcasting, <laughs> yeah, it was a podcast move. Yeah, I mean, this is, I think this is important for people to know. It's like, we're not just co-workers and podcast partners. Bill is my friend, and I enjoy helping And obviously my a good friend, because when you agree to help someone move, that's like the pinnacle of friendship, I think. Well... It was a reciprocal move help. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Move assistance. Yeah, Bill helped me move two years ago, uh, one of the most stressful days of my life. And as I told him, I'm something of an outlier in that regard, because while everyone hates moving, and I do too, helping people move is like literally one of my favorite things to do. Does it just make you feel like really altruistic? No, it's it's not even about that. I mean, I know that it's stressful for the person, and I enjoy being able to like inject a little bit of levity into the situation and just like do what I'm told. And I don't know. I, it's I, like I, a nice communal activity. You get some beer, you get some pizza. Yeah. It's, I think uh, it's probably really important to tell our, our longtime listeners that um, Bill did not leave Brooklyn. No, no, you no. You are still, still there. there. Still yeah. there. Yeah, yeah. Amongst, uh, amongst the bearded. Yes. And, and also one of, the, one of the smoother moves I've ever been involved in. It was in. painless. Pretty, pretty painless as far Very, as that goes. So. Very nice. Yeah. Although I am tired right now. So if I slip up, dear listener, <laughs> that's well, why. since Bill sounds downright weary. Let's mix it up a little today. We also have a judge on as our guest, so we want to give him a little extra time. Let's just talk about one story up top. And Alex, I think you're going to take point on bringing something to us. Yeah, and it's a big one. So a couple of, I guess, about five weeks ago when President Donald Trump first announced that he would be instituting a ban on transgender individuals serving in the military, it was only a matter of time before this saw the inside of a courtroom. And that process is starting to pick up in earnest now. Um, Last week, we got Two new lawsuits filed in Maryland court and in uh, Washington state court. And that joins a, a third suit was filed earlier this month in D.C. federal court. So what's the the argument here that the plaintiffs are bringing? Yeah, there's at least three cases that we know of, um, and they're brought by current military members. And they all allege generally the same thing. And they're going the constitutional route at this stage. They're basically saying that the somewhat abrupt decision to you know, re- reverse the policy of uh, allowing transgender people to serve in the military violates the due process portions of the Fifth Amendment because they were not, you know, given sufficient notice um, mm-hmm. and had no sort of, you know, legal machinery predating, you know, this uh, this announcement. Mm-hmm. But the government, I'm sure, has their own set of arguments about this. What's their retort so far? Uh, well, Officially, nothing yet. These cases are all are still pretty early and they haven't made any filings or responded to any of the allegations. But if we take uh, at their word, the actual memorandum that Trump uh, issued this week or uh, uh, late last week, I think um, he basically said that when the Obama administration in 2016 opened the doors of the military for transgender people to serve. It did so without considering whether that move would, and this is a quote, 
hinder military effectiveness and lethality, hmm. disrupt unit cohesion, or tax military resources, which called to mind for me, at least about the lethality thing. I feel like this, this memo owes a debt to Mike Huckabee, who famously once said that the, the military's job is to kill people and break things. So, um, yeah, that lethality, that's such a loaded word there. But this sounds a little different to me than when I was just casually following along. Trump tweeted about this on Twitter, and it seemed like that wasn't his... His, his it'll be, reason. It'll be, I mean, we talked about this in the context of the travel ban. It'll be interesting if these tweets come into come into play here. That you yeah. know, this idea of what you can look at and what you can't look at. This is going to shock you, given what we know about this administration. But the rollout of this policy was somewhat. Uh, I think I feel comfortable saying it was somewhat clumsy because it started uh, before it was an official document. As you said, it was a series of Trump tweets, and he basically uh, one of the main points he said, and one thing that I expect the government. Um, to probably argue if this goes ahead, is that uh, Trump objected to this notion that the military would be on the hook for uh, providing medical care to mm -hmm. people uh, who are transgender. Yeah, he, he was like, we don't want to pay for this. It's expensive, basically. Yeah, and that pertains to stuff like you know hormone therapy, gender reassignment surgery, stuff like that. Now, notably, that is not in the text of the memo, but as you said, we'll see how it uh, you know, but, comes to bear. So you mentioned that it's been sort of a messy rollout. And I think, I mean, we saw that the other day that uh, Secretary of Defense Mattis came out and said that, sort of walk me through what he said, because I, I, you know, wasn't following along yeah. super closely. Um, uh, James Mattis, the Secretary of Defense, came out and basically, basically hit pause on the whole thing. Yeah. Um, and so does that moot the claims of what the... Not so far. In fact, uh, just today, as we're recording this, uh, an amended complaint was filed in the in the D.C. case. They mm -hmm. added some more plaintiffs, and so they are proceeding apace. Um, but in, there's an interesting sort of thing with the Mattis angle because there was already – it already wasn't going to go into effect until early next year. That's when, like, the ban was going to go into place. Mattis has now convened basically an advisory panel to examine the issue and then sort of – you know, decide whether or not that that's actually a prudent step. And that'll be interesting in the legal context, I think, because if for the sake of argument, Mattis has convened this panel and they decide that actually, yes, this is a good, like, this is a good policy and we should, you know, ban transgender people from serving in the military. Then you might see an alteration of the claims. I mean, it would, it remains to be seen whether or not they would think that that sort of you know, consulting, you know, process was due process and they, they could attack it on some other ground, you know, with for on, under some other statute. But the Constitution claim might might go away. But we'll see. Uh, the, the short answer is that it's still going as far mm -hmm. as as far as we can tell. And the um, and the people are and, and there's still you well, know, briefs being filed. Things like one that. thing I think about when we hear these big splashy things in the news that are covered widely is um, how I look at things through the lens of Law 360, and it's always like, what firepower is behind these lawsuits? So we actually have some interesting answers, right? Yeah, I thought that that was that was pretty interesting to me. Lead Taking the lead on these cases are groups that you would expect, like the ACLU and then an LGBTQ advocacy firm called Lambda Legal um, and some other rights groups like mm -hmm. that. But also on these legal teams are some big law heavyweights um, that are doing it pro bono. The two lawsuits filed this week... Um, have attorneys on them from Kirkland and Ellis uh, and also Covington and Burling. And the suit that was filed at the beginning of the month has uh, attorneys on it from Foley Hogue and Wilmer Hale. So mm. this is not, this, these are not some lightweights. Yeah, here. it's going to be a, well, cause, a big battle between some real, you know, 
heavy hitters in the government and heavy hitters mm-hmm. from the legal world. Sort of calls to mind the marriage equality cases. I believe that they had some big sort of like corporate litigate. Wasn't David Boyes one of the um, on that case? I but, think so. Yeah. So I feel like it. it you know. Folks who you know work at big law, they they maybe take these opportunities as a chance to to you know get into something that that is a little closer to home, or maybe that they you know want to want to advocate for. Yeah, and it'll be that that'll create really interesting dynamics if if this you know picks up the pace that we think it will to see you know how how these people clash in court over something like this, which obviously is a very sensitive issue for a lot of people, and it got people very fired up, and they're not uh, being shy about using the legal process mm. to. Uh, to address those claims. Yeah, thanks for bringing that, Alex. Appreciate it. Sure. Seventh Circuit Judge Richard Posner is a leading figure in the law and a prolific writer who's penned around 40 books. His latest is The Federal Judiciary, Strengths and Weaknesses, but is it worth picking up a copy? To answer that question, we have another keen legal mind joining us today, Nebraska federal judge Richard Kupf. Welcome, Judge Kupf. Thank you. So I really loved the review you wrote for Law 360 about this book. It was engaging and, and fun. But I want to get our listeners oriented to how you feel about Posner right off the bat so they sort of know where you're coming from. So what are your thoughts on him? I said I was a Posner groupie in the review, and I meant it. (laughs) Posner is never boring. Uh, More importantly, as I said in the review, Posner is, in my opinion, um, the greatest thinker about the law writ large since uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes, who I described as Posner's cranky older brother. (laughs) Since I'm a legal realist, if I'm anything, I revere Posner's plain-spoken candor. But ultimately, the job of a judge, in my opinion, is to tell the truth plainly, while also understanding that in any decent dispute, there are more than one truths. Posner tells us his truths plainly and ever so well, However, in my opinion, he often fails to acknowledge the truths residing on the other side. Put another way, Posner sometimes has laser vision in one eye, but appears to be blind in the other. (laughs) (laughs) That really sets us up there for some general thoughts on him. Yeah, well, and then through that lens, um, I would be interested in knowing your opinion on this, Judge Kupf. Uh, Posner's book is basically a, a a pretty stinging critique of the U.S. judicial system. And he, you know, points out the various shortcomings with regard to, you know, management of judicial staff, you know, the complex system of appeals. He raises many points, and I just would love to know uh, your thoughts on that. You know, what, what points do you agree with? What do you disagree with? Is he overstating or understating some things? Sure. Let me preface my remarks by saying this. Uh, My answer will be superficial. Uh, Judge Posner's book is over 400 pages long, and I could pick likes and dislikes on virtually every page. But with that caution given, here, here are three areas of agreement. A, 
Federal judges should write more of their opinions rather than delegating the task to law clerks, as Judge Posner suggests. Notice that I did not say that judges should write all of their opinions. There has to be a balance if we are to keep the trains running on time. But Posner is correct that judges must write at least some opinions of their very own. This reinforces an intellectual discipline that, in my opinion, can only be achieved by writing your own opinions. Next, or B, <laughs> I, agree with Judge, I agree with Judge Posner that it is a scandal that there's no cost of living differential for federal judges who live in expensive places in this vast country of ours. I'm well compensated by Lincoln, Nebraska standards. My fellow district judges in New York City make far less than associates in many, many, many law firms in the city. Hmm. And we can attest to the high cost of living in the New York City area. Yeah. <laughs> well, and this is a travesty, and, and it's significantly harmful because... When it comes to attracting young and diverse judges, at least in where you are at in New York City or L.A. or Chicago or, I suppose, Dallas or Atlanta, uh, there are a lot of young, talented, diverse people who simply can't afford to leave a practice uh, and take a substantial pay cut. So I'm right there with Judge Posner <clears throat> on that critique. I also agree with Posner, thirdly, that law schools, and particularly elite law schools, should hire many more law professors who intend to base their teaching and their scholarship on their own experiences as practicing lawyers. And I feel very strongly about that. So those are the things, three areas of agreement that Judge Posner and I are on the same page, more or less. So those are three really interesting points of things you agree with Posner on. But could you maybe walk us through three things where, where, where you don't agree? Posner hates pattern jury instructions. He, atta he attacks pattern jury instructions because they contain too much legal jumbo, according, mumbo jumbo, rather, mm -hmm. according to Judge Posner. At least in the Eighth Circuit, where I uh, hang out, in both the criminal context and the civil context, I don't believe Posner's critique is accurate at all. Frankly, I doubt that he could really do a better job. Now on to two wonkish points. Posner believes that courts are too backward-looking and refuse to properly engage with the modern world. Here, I think Posner fails to acknowledge that courts are intended to be conservative, and I don't mean in a political sense, but rather in a ju jurisprudential one. One might properly think of the federal courts as reactionary rather than revolutionary. Let me give you a very simplistic example. Courts demand that plaintiffs in civil cases and the government in criminal cases bear a burden of proof. You could imagine a system that was reverse, but this requirement is premised on the notion that the status quo is preferable to unjustified change. And that brings me to my third point of disagreement. Mm -hmm. 
Posner believes that modern federal judges should find the right decision and then determine whether the precedents block the result. Um, pardon me, but this is ass backwards. <laughs> Posner seems to suggest that precedent-based decision-making is inconsistent with practical decision-making. That is manifestly wrong in the huge majority of cases that the federal courts confront. In this regard, Posner falls into the tyranny, the trap of the words either and or. So those are three areas of agreement and three areas of disagreement. Judge, um, your your review it was it was a great read, and it ends with with a great line that that if you you know if you read it you will be less dumb. Um, if our listeners go out and buy the book, um, what are what are what what's a you know what's something important that they'll learn? What are a few key things that they that they'll take away from the book? I think the reader will uh, learn three things. Uh, number one, Posner is like IBM's Watson. Read him, and I promise you'll learn something important that you've never been aware of before. Mm-hmm. Secondly, Posner is the kung fu grandmaster of argumentation. <laughs> <laughs> Read him, and I promise you, I promise you that your arguments will improve. Thirdly, Posner, in my opinion, is among the greatest nonfiction writers, legal or otherwise, of the last 100 years, mm. read him, and I promise that your writing will be much improved. That sounds like even with some disagreement that you outlined before, that everyone should run out and get this book. <laughs> yeah, well, and on on that note, uh, one of my favorite parts of the review is that, and 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 you started off the interview with some you know glowing remarks about Posner as a legal mind. So let's re- reiterate that. But you also say in the review that portions of the book. Uh, are intended to, quote, troll us. And you're certainly not the first person to lob that kind of accusation about Judge Posner, but I was hoping we could drill down a little deeper into that. What do you mean? What, 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 what parts do you perceive as trolling? All right. Large segments of the book are trolling, and it gets real tiresome. <laughs> <laughs> By trolling, I mean essentially two things. The first is saying outlandish things to gain the reader's attention and for no other apparent purpose is one sense of trolling. Mm-hmm. Guys, we should avoid that on the podcast then. <laughs> Indeed you should. <laughs> Suggesting outlandish and unrealistic solutions is another sense of trolling. Mm-hmm. Let me give you an example from pages 95 and 96 and 120 and probably other places. <laughs> where Posner rhetorically eviscerates Justice Kagan for lauding Justice Scalia both personally and professionally upon the death of Scalia. This is an outlandish attack on Kagan for her statements of affection and respect for Scalia. Posner seems to demand that Kagan speak ill of the dead. Now, let me be clear. I don't care that he attacks Kagan. I just don't want my time wasted while Posner pursues his jihad. (laughs) Let me give you two examples of outlandish solutions from pages 213 and 214. While he references a respected law professor in support of his assertion, he wants the Supreme Court to be expanded to 19 justices. (laughs) 
he argues that then we could have judges experienced in math and physics and other scientific endeavors. I ask, why not a William Butler Yeats scholar that Posner once was? People in hell want ice water, but that doesn't mean we should waste our time speculating how to divert the Missouri River to the underworld. <laughs> Is this from the Posner book or from a Reddit forum? That that sounds, that sounds right. <laughs> ahead, I, I never, you'll never get me to admit that I've never seen a Reddit forum. <laughs> I, think, also, I think you might have implicitly done that, but that's okay. Go ahead. <laughs> He also asserts that we ought to increase the number of votes necessary for Senate confirmation of judges to 67. He does not explain uh, why he doesn't want 70. The point of all of this is that it's not going to happen. So why waste our time? So those are the dual senses I meant about trolling. In the Reddit world, we call that shit posting. just so you know. <laughs> <laughs> So the last thing I wanted to ask you about this book, Posner ends it with grades for different aspects of the judiciary. And overall, he gives a GPA of 82.75. So it's between a B and a B plus. Do you think Mm -hmm. that that's the correct assessment? And what would your grade be? I said in my review that I thought Posner was an easy grader. And (laughs) I, I maintain that. I'd give the federal courts a C. And that's, uh, frankly, a high grade. So C on a curve. It's, yeah, I don't even know. I yeah, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, well, I don't care. Anyway, Judge Posner once said that the general public knows more about the CIA than they do the federal judiciary, and that's the truth. The federal courts are simply not nearly as transparent as they should be. And in my opinion, and regrettably, that is darkly intentional. I want to give you a couple of examples. Posner demonstrates in his book that there is simply no good reason for not allowing C-SPAN to televise the proceedings of the Supreme Court, or at the very least to do a pilot program with with C-SPAN to see whether the world would end if uh, that was televised. I believe that this refusal is intended to protect the individual justices from public criticism as they joust with each other and the lawyers during oral argument. That is not a sufficient reason. It is a selfish reason. Let me give you another example that's closer to home for a district judge like me. It is simply shameful that individual judges' sentencing statistics are not made public as a matter of course. I am very, very proud that in the District of Nebraska, we demand from the Sentencing Commission our individual sentencing statistics, and we put them on our website for everyone to see. So far as I know, we are the only court to do this. I also know that this practice irritates the hell out of a fair number of judges in other districts. And frankly, that tickles me no end. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this conversation has been really great. Thank you, Judge Cup, for coming on the show and, and sharing your thoughts on this book and on the judiciary as a whole. Thanks a lot. 
You're welcome. Yeah, and like and like any good book club, uh, we got like some wine and hors d'oeuvres going up here. So maybe if we have you on again, you can come up to the uh, come up to the studio. We can have we can have a little more fun. Okay, I only drink wine out of a box. So, uh, <laughs> oh, I think that I think that can be arranged. We can definitely handle that. <laughs> Thanks again for being Thanks, with Judge. us. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Bye bye. We like to end our show with something offbeat, and this week we're going to talk about the franchise Subway. Everybody's eating there, right? A lot more when I was lightly employed. Well, they're really hard to avoid because there's, uh, I looked this up before we started the, the show today, there's 45,000 Subway stores worldwide. Well, it's actually the biggest restaurant chain. In New York, they exist in like in like one little tiny chambers, like in between buildings. That, yeah, they don't they, need a lot of space. No. Yeah. That's true. I, and, I, I, I actually had lunch there, like I think... A month and a half ago, or something, and I didn't, I didn't tell my wife because I was like really embarrassed about it. Well, she probably, she probably smelled it on you when you yeah. got home. Subway, Subway, <laughs> yeah. Like, Nothing else in the world smells like Subway. It's true. It's a very specific, bread very distinct smell. Yeah. Um. So the thing that always sticks with me is that jingle they had for a while. It was with like the five, five dollar, five dollar mm, foot mm, long. Sure. That was only, the one. Uh, many of those footlongs were not 12 inches, apparently, and that's caused some legal trouble. Get out of here. This is a, this is a story about some people who claim they were $5 foot wronged. Wow. Yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, so here's what's happened. There was uh, a series of suits about this where people said that they were actually getting 11-inch sandwiches, not footlong subs. This will not stand. No. Well, I mean, they were owed an inch of sandwich, so mm-hmm. it became pretty big. It it became part of a multi-district litigation over this. And there ultimately was a settlement that was agreed to, but the Seventh Circuit tossed it, said that it was uh, half-baked, guys. Okay. <laughs> didn't like the right. settlement. Yikes. Um, so they basically said that the settlement was worthless to everyone but plaintiff's attorneys, mm-hmm. which is not really what you want a court to say. So what was the what like what were the terms of the settlement that the court hated so much? So the terms are pretty interesting. Um, the class counsel was going to get five hundred and twenty thousand dollars in attorneys' fees. Uh-huh. There were ten named plaintiffs who were going to get five hundred dollars a piece, and then beyond that, Subway was just going to do some soft things to try to prevent this problem. Mm-hmm. And it was things like measuring the subs with a special <laughs> tool in all the restaurants, the, special, the, the sandwich standardization committee. <laughs> yeah hive mind thing and then they were going to warn customers that there can be variations in your bread <laughs> of all Some the things of all the things subway should warn their customers about i can't imagine 11 inch subs is one of them well uh, you know this is interesting too because the judge basically said um the these promise changes of like measuring and warning customers and trying mm-hmm. to make it more standardized really changed nothing because it's a franchise company and everything's standardized already. The sandwich bread comes to these restaurants already in standard units. Mm-hmm. So does the meat and the cheese and everything. It's it's not like they are, don't already have systems in place to keep things standard. Right. Okay. So what? So what did the judge? What was like the nut of the? They, she just said this. This sucks. Or well, what? she literally said that the injunctive relief. So that would include like these standardization steps. She said it was utterly worthless. Okay. So she basically just kicked this because there wasn't going to be a big monetary settlement to all these people that were potentially impacted. Mm-hmm. Um, and the the measures they were taking really, she thought, wasn't going to change. So anything. she wants like more from Subway? Like she wants them to do like change all their processes or what? Or like, well, you know, she, she wasn't specific in terms of saying like, 
go do this and come huh. back to me. Yeah, you said uh, the settlement isn't good enough. But just yeah. said it wasn't good enough. And presumably, there are ways around this. It could be a different monetary outcome. I was for looking the, forward for the people for my email uh, from like uh, the class committee, where it explains <laughs> to me that I'm a potential member of a class action. You know, well, the, the, yeah, you may ahead. yet still get something out of this because um, on Monday the customers told a Wisconsin district court where this had all originated mm -hmm. that was overseeing this multi district litigation that they're going to restart the litigation. So <laughs> they got there the settlement go. bounce. They're just going to start again. And what the Customers said this time around is that they're going to make a confidential series of subway documents about their bread vendors wow. uh, and their quality Going control all and some the way other to the things. Top. Yeah, follow, I mean, follow so, the flower, dude. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> so they're going to bring in some of that stuff and um, hash it out again, basically. Wow. Okay. Thanks Tinch, for that. <laughs> tinching along toward a conclusion. Oh, ba -boom. yes, sure yeah. is. Thanks, Amber. <laughs> Thanks, guys. That'll wrap up our show today. As always, I'm with Bill Donahue. See you next week, guys. And Alex Lawson. Thanks. We have several people to thank for today's show, including our producers Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader. We'd also like to thank our guest, Judge Richard Cupp, for joining us. Contributing reporters this week include Diana Novak-Jones, Daniel Wilson, and Braden Campbell. Music for the show this week comes from Silent Partner and Little Glass Men. If you want to know more about any of the legal developments we've discussed today, check out our website at law360.com backslash podcast. And if you like the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks, and join us again next week.